Hi, you're listening to The Professional's Playbook, a podcast that brings transparency to top performers, careers, and topics. My name is Justin Hazard-Lee. I'm an F-35 fighter pilot for the Air Force. The goal of this podcast is to find experts who are at the top of their field to share their insights based on credibility and experience. My guest today is Joe DeSena, the founder and CEO of Spartan, the world's largest obstacle race and endurance brand. They have more than 250 events across 40 countries with over 1 million annual global participants. He's also the host of the Spartan Up podcast and is a New York Times bestselling author of three books, Spartan Up, Spartan Fit, and The Spartan Way. Today's episode is brought to you by Bremont, over-engineered watches for professionals. In the last few years, Bremont has taken over as the fighter pilot's watch. Their combination of precision, quality, and customer service is unmatched. You can see all their watches by going to bremont.com. Now here's a highlight from our conversation today. I ask people, and I do it myself, when you commit and you commit publicly, you're more likely to stick to it. So I ask people to um, commit publicly in their local newspaper before they're allowed to do the death race. And by doing that, the dropout rate uh, drops significantly. And so that's something that the listeners to this podcast should, should do, whether they want to lose weight, start a new business, uh, are going to ask a, a, a boy or a girl out or, or whatever it is, commit to it publicly and, and all of a sudden you're being held accountable. In our conversation, we talk about how to build grit, his principles for high performance, and how he started the Spartan race. If you want to keep up with me, you can follow along at Justin Fighter Pilot on Instagram or Justin Hazard Lee on LinkedIn. I also send out a monthly newsletter you can find that at professionalsplaybook.com. Now, without further ado, Joe DeSena. All right, Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks thanks for coming on. We always have a contingent here at Luke that does the Spartan races, so it's nice to be talking to the guy who, who started it all. Thanks. I'm pretty honored to uh, have anybody want to talk to me, especially on a podcast. <laughs> My wife doesn't want to talk to me, so um, this is awesome. All right, well, let's, let's do it. So how... How did the Spartan race start? What was the motivation behind that? God, it started really 40 years ago. When you think about it, my mom, my mom found yoga, meditation, health food. She became vegan before it was cool. It was the early, mid-1970s. She happened to walk into a health food store. And when she walked in, she met a yogi, a 90-year-old yogi. And he talked her into a different way of life. Rather than ganolis and raviolis and cheesecake, there was a healthier, better way, which today is common knowledge. wasn't really common knowledge back then. Anyway, she started to take up running. She introduced me to my sister and I to a race called the Transcendence Run. It's 3,100 miles around a one-mile loop, still exists today in Queens. And it really just piqued my interest as a young lad. I started to think, God, what is possible, right? Can you imagine running one mile? two miles, three miles, 3,100 miles, 50, mm. 60 days of running. So anyway, all those seeds were planted. Fast forward, I needed to uh, sow my own oats, find out am I tough enough because all the guys in the neighborhood were tough. I wanted to be tough. Then I wanted to make money. I was lucky enough to land on Wall Street, graduate college. Still wasn't happy. Was starting to feel unhealthy, out of shape, was making money. And so I went back to my mom's ways and I started running, doing yoga, doing all the things I pushed back on, you know, at that point, 30 years earlier. 
and I felt great. I felt alive. Now, in fairness, I had made some money. I had, I had checked some boxes in my life. So it was a little easier to get excited around focusing on, you know, getting healthy and eating well. I think when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you're stuck down at the bottom or you're working your way up, there's some basic needs you got to focus on first before you can focus on yourself. So yeah, and then and then I just got excited about this new idea of just changing others' lives. Can I get other people healthy? Can I get other people eating well and and experiencing everything I experienced? And so that's that's really it in a nutshell. You know, it's a 20 year overnight success. 15 of those 20 years, we lost money. Yeah, it's been a nightmare in so many ways. But on the other hand, it's so rewarding. So many people reach out and, you know, I believe in this thing called a Spartan paradox, we call it. And so almost everybody says in the first world, well, I'd love to do that, but I got to get in shape first. I got to start eating healthy first. I got to join a gym first. And actually the Spartan paradox says, um, no, you actually have to sign up for something difficult first. Because if you do that, then you're going to go to the gym. Then you're going to eat healthy. Then you're going to go to bed early. Then you're not going to drink the wine and the cookies and et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's confusing to a lot of people. They wonder why New Year's resolutions don't work, why gym memberships don't work, why reading books don't work. None of that stuff works because you don't have a date on the calendar. We provide the date on the calendar and then really an electric prod of accountability to to make sure you stay focused right up until uh, D-Day. Was this kind of the vision that you had all those years ago when you first started it, or did it evolve into more of different obstacles? Because when I look at it, I see, I haven't raced it, but I'm, I'm looking forward to my, my first one, but I see a lot of what I did in basic training. So crawling under barbed wire, in the mud, all, all of that stuff that, that takes me back to, to basically boot camp. It definitely evolved over time. The obstacles change, but, but from the very beginning, it really was just about getting people out of their comfort zone and getting them healthy, getting them off the couch, because that worked for me, right? And everybody that my mom convinced to go on a different path, and they're like, it worked for them. So that was at the core, that's what it was. Then it became about 10 years into it, oh, you know what? It needs to be military-inspired obstacles, because that's going to that's gonna be exciting for people. It's basically a yogi wrapped in camo right? <laughs> or, or a Spartan helmet. And, and then from there, we just kept evolving and tightening it and getting it, getting it better because um, we listen to the customers and we see what works and what doesn't. But at its core, it hasn't changed, right? Get you off the couch, get you sweating, get you doing something that's really, I would like to say, you end up having fun doing something that's not fun. Right. Well, I mean, I think a lot of other races have similar goals. Why do you think Spartan race has, has taken off? Well, I mean, I, listen, prior to Spartan, yes, uh, it's pretty hard to get off the couch and go run the New York Marathon, right? It's pretty hard to get off the couch and go do an Ironman. But there's something badass about Spartan. The name, the 2,500 years of history, the military tie-in, the obstacles which become really... Life's obstacles that you know that you get you get to uh, practice on, right? And so, and then running running's boring. I mean, I've done my share of I did so many damn Ironmans, so many marathons, ultra marathons, and uh, they're boring, right? 
You know, do you think people are seeking that out that that challenge because most people are kind of locked in a cubicle and you're not going out and fighting the wolves or whatever we did back in the day. You and I, and we have open minds, right? You and I, uh, just look at us right now. We are zoo animals. That's right. what we are. We're zoo animals. Zoo animals don't mate well. They're not that happy. They're not in their best physical condition. You can't let them back out into the wild. So yeah, I mean, we get a little taste of what it was like uh, our ancestors. You know, they lived out in the wild. They weren't zoo animals. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why it feels so good. And I think that's why down, down deep inside, you know, our, we're, we're seeking to go back to the wild. But, but really digest that thought. If you're listening to this, we are zoo animals. We get fed on demand. Right? We've got climate-controlled rooms. Uh, we're taking temperature-controlled showers. We're zoo animals. Right. I remember coming back from Afghanistan and just thinking that everything was just kind of pointless over here because there we we had a mission, lives were on the line, and coming back here, the decisions were, you know, are we going to go to Starbucks or this other hipster coffee place? So it, it took me a while to to reintegrate back into kind of the trivial decisions that we make day to day here. I know. I remember once doing a recap of a race I had completed somewhere in the world and I sent it out to all my friends to give them a taste of what I had just been through for 15 days. Um, obviously what you did in the military is much, much more difficult, much more challenging, much more purposeful than my personal races. But, but uh, I remember a friend responding and said, oh my God, I couldn't get a parking spot close to the grocery store today and I was having a tough day and now I read this and I and it is true we, we've got it so damn easy we just don't know it right I want to hear more about your your races because I think I, I read you did 50 ultra events can you talk to what an ultra event event is and and what that training was like and more importantly what the recovery was like for that you know uh, let's go back to the Spartan paradox um, the reason I did so many events was because I found that if I didn't have dates on the calendar nonstop, I'd fall back into regular zoo living. And it would be hard for me to get motivated to go to the gym just like everybody else. So I said, I'm just gonna keep races on the calendar nonstop, so I'm always on. And um, an ultra marathon is anything longer than 26.2 miles. So it could be a 50K, could be a 50 miler, 100 miler. And you're just going ultra distance and you're out there and it's usually at a slow, fairly slow pace. You've got aid stations every seven to 10 miles, unless it's self-supported. And uh, you just drive yourself into the ground. I just got back a couple of days ago from 110K in Australia in the mountains. And um, that's why I'm a little toast right now. But I need it, you know, you need it. You need to get out there. Even like I have nothing else to prove to myself or to others. I, I, I put my time in, right? I check my boxes when it comes to events. But I needed it because uh, even, you know, at 51 years old, we just got to keep going out and, and testing ourselves. Like, you know, my friend and I joked during the whole run in Australia, this idea of laurels, resting on laurels, right? Those, those wreaths that they used to wear in Rome. I don't think we can rest on our laurels. I think we've got, we've got to constantly prove ourselves. What have you done? You know, your mind and body is probably asking every day, what have you done for me? What are you doing for me today? Forget about yesterday. What's that mindset like when you're in mile 30 of one of these races? What's what's the mental self-talk like? You go to dark you go to dark places. I like to say to people, it doesn't matter what kind of shape you're in. And I wasn't in great shape for this for this run in Australia. My friend was in much better shape, but we're both going to be pretty broken 10 hours in. 
and then and then it's game on, right? And then it's all head games, right? Your own head games, and you go to dark places, especially if you if you've done a bunch of races like I have, because then you say, I don't have anything to prove. I might as well just pack it in here. Like, well, I don't. Why do I, Why am I killing myself? And you you really start to justify it, and then and then I have to remember and dig deep and remember. Wait a minute. If I just could make it to the next aid station, if I could just make it a little, I, I know what that feels like. To, it's a lot more rewarding, Joe. Let's stick it out. And then I start talking to my body. Let's force the brain to keep going here, to let, them, let the brain know, which is trying to get me to quit, that we're not quitting, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then the body wants to quit, and then I talk to the brain. And, and um, you really, you meet yourself out there. You know, right. you were out in Afghanistan, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the mental aspect, obviously as fighter pilots, we're kind of doing a lot of things more mentally, but yeah, four hours in, six hours into a mission, you're you're kind of fried. So it's it's really, you're trying to push yourself to the limit, so. Past boundaries, that, yeah. That self-talk was really important. But I also noticed on those long missions that I had to take care of my body. I had to kind of rest every 30 minutes or so. So what's what's that like in terms of pacing yourself, in terms of nutrition, getting through one of these races? You know, I wish I knew 20 years ago when I started these races, what I know now, like in Australia just now, I, I pretty much survive on nuts. We had avocado at some of the aid stations, which was awesome. Lots of water. Um, I, I've got I found uh, a hydration formula we created for Spartan. That's just, I'm going to sound like a salesman. That's just out of this world. Um, it's basically slow release uh, electrolytes. I've got a, an energy pill too. And so I, I've dialed it in now after 20 years. Uh, it's very minimal, very simplistic, a lot less sugar, a lot less goose, a lot less manufactured foods. And then as far as rest goes, you just fight through. You know, there's really not a lot of time to rest on these on these events, but you can, you could stop and rest, but then the problem is it's hard to get back up. So you're better off just avoiding it. I mean, I, I have trouble seeing you in a, in a conference room talking about sales formulas and things like that. So what do you, what do you like in the conference room? I, I was in the office today. I'm pretty difficult, kind of all over the place, demanding results, but I, we've got a great team. We're 500 plus people around the globe in 45 countries and kind of like Belichick, right? The Patriots coach, uh, do your job, <laughs> do your effing job. And so people do their jobs, but we're a new company, even though we're 20 years old, we're new, we created a sport from scratch. And so I'm learning too. I never ran a global brand like this before. So I'm learning and uh, I'm definitely not the greatest manager, but I don't know, I'm figuring it out every day. I'd be lying to you if I told you we've got a an incredible system and protocols that I have in place. I brought in a lot of military folks to help use some some of the things you you know how to use in our everyday business, and and it's really helped. Yeah, how has that organization evolved? How do you look uh, look for new talent? It's in a very unorthodox way. It's usually people raising their hand and saying, "Hey, I want to work here," and that's not really the way you should do it, right? The way you should do it is figure out what you need and then go find it. But to date, over the last 20 years, it's been, if you have a heartbeat, if you're enthusiastic, if you love this brand, and I don't really care about domain expertise, although we're getting to a point now where we really got to find domain expertise in certain areas. It can't just be Joe met this person uh, on a plane or in a trail or at a race. 
and we're bringing this this uh, male or female in to run to run something. So now we're becoming a little more sophisticated about that and trying to find uh, exceptional talent. But those 500 people that have survived the 20, like they're great people. We really have great people. And I, I believe if you've got um, an enthusiastic person that's an energy giver, not an en energy taker, that really has a work ethic, boy, they'll, they can get anything done. Right. I mean, the, the passion and the good attitude, that, that's probably the most important thing. We see, so we're out here training training the, the new pilots, and, and that's the most important thing is having a good attitude, being passionate. They all aren't going to be great pilots when they when they first start, but if they have that kind of core work ethic, then then usually they're going to be just fine in their careers. I agree with that. So a leadership challenge, you have 500 people out there. What's been your biggest challenge over the years as you've grown? Because you guys have grown seems like pretty rapidly in the last few years. Well, I mean, it's all, this, all the usual suspects that you would, you would expect, always running out of money. Uh, I try to push the organization the same way I ask people to push themselves. So we're always outside our comfort zone. We're always punching above our weight, trying to manage all those people. You're basically, you, you'll appreciate this uh, analogy. You're trying to repair the plane and build a new plane while the plane you're in is, is burning, right? And so... Yeah, it's all it's all it's all those challenges is making sure you got the right people in the right seats, uh, even though we started with the wrong people because we just needed somebody there right at that moment. And and like I said, we're creating it's not like uh, there's a model, you know, when Burger King at least had a blueprint to follow with McDonald's. We don't really have a blueprint. We're creating the blueprint. So it's a little more complicated there. And we're figuring it out as we go. Have you been an entrepreneur your whole life? Or is this kind of more of a, a later in life kind of thing? No, my whole life, my whole life uh, since. Yeah, I, I was I was preteens. I, I I sold fireworks was my first business. <laughs> I got in trouble for that. Sounds like high uh, liability business. Yeah, high liability, um, risky, illegal, and then from there I built a swimming pool and construction company for uh, over a decade, and then from there. Went to Wall Street, built a trading firm, sold it, went to Vermont. We bought a, a couple of farms, a bed and breakfast, a bunch of stuff. And then from there, Spartan was started. So talking about the construction business, I, I saw that in, in college, you started that. So, I mean, that's that's definitely rare to start a, I think it was a multi-million dollar business is what I read in in college. So I had started about? it. I had started it much younger. I had started it uh, my preteens right after the fireworks. Uh, it started with clean and swimming pools. And uh, my, my neighbor was the boss of one of the organized crime families and he needed his pool clean. And he taught me some really important life lessons and business lessons at a young age. He said, um, you know, if you're gonna be here at eight, you should be here at 7.45, right? On time is late. He told me, you know, if you're gonna clean the pool, you should also clean around the pool, the patio, the shed, even though I'm not paying you for that, you got to go above and beyond so much so that when I come home and see the job you did, I'm like, this guy's unbelievable. You might not have even done a great job on the pool, but because you straightened everything else up, like you're, I can't live without you and I'm going to recommend you to everybody. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was, um, don't have your hand out. Don't be asking for money. You'll get paid. You do a good job, you get paid. Mm -hmm. And, and those three things have really catapulted me through, through life. And it came from the most unlikely source. You know, but but from there, people started saying, hey, Joe, could you do some patio work? 
can you put in new windows? Can you do this? Can you do that? And so it turned into a construction company. Well, I mean, how do you scale it? A lot of, uh, I guess, kids have pretty good little businesses that they run, shoveling snow, things like that. So how do you scale it from that to a multi-million dollar business? I, I'm relentless. And, and uh, somebody else said to me during those years, hey, Joe, you know, you take care of a business until it can take care of you. So you keep putting back into it. And so right away, I wasn't, I wasn't taking money out for years. Just kept putting it in, putting it in, putting it in, growing it, branding it, expanding, hiring. I get pretty damn focused. And it requires focus. You know, there's a great book those listening should read. In Search of Excellence by, by an author named Tom Peters wrote it late 80s. And I was lucky enough at that time where Tom Peters and Ken Blanchard and some of the, the management gurus back then were, were writing these kinds of things. And he said, when they looked at you know thousands of companies, what they found, there's usually a monomaniac on a mission is the reason those companies do real well. And I would say when I take on a project, I'm a monomaniac on a mission. Not, not just because I read that, just because that's how I'm wired. I think, I think I'm definitely, you know, there, some people say there's farmers in this world and then there's hunter-gatherers, right? A farmer plants seeds and waits for things to grow. A hunter-gatherer goes out and hunts. And I'm definitely a hunter-gatherer. Well, it seems like it has parallels to, to the racing. When you're in hour 18 of a race, you, you kind of have to be a little bit crazy to, to keep pushing forward. No, no doubt about it. You've got to have that. you got to be a monitor. A monomaniac on a mission out there too, no doubt about it. What other lessons? It sounds like you kind of cut your teeth a little bit doing the construction business. What are some other lessons you learned, I guess, particularly with, with branding that have since carried forward? I just have, I have an instinct. I have a good gut instinct on, on branding. I mean, the Spartan name was unbelievable that we were able to secure that. Does that have any history with, with you? I mean, I, I saw the movie. I do remember in, in school, probably eighth or ninth grade, learning about the Spartans, and it really was interesting to me. So that it probably pops up there. And then, and then the neighborhood I was from. So many people lived the Spartan life in the sense that, in the sense that they planned on going to jail. That was their. That was how they made their bones, quote unquote. Right. That's how that it was called college. So, and that's certainly a very Spartan type although it's crazy and I'm not advocating people go to jail, but that, right? So I don't know, it really fit me. And then my mom with the yoga, the meditation, that was a very Spartan kind of existence. She meditated once, 30 days, 30 days meditating straight, fasting. So that was very Spartan-esque. You know, first and foremost, I'm a salesman. You know, if you can't sell your product, you can't sell yourself, you're not going anywhere. You got to be selling, you got to be bringing in revenue. So I think my instinct around branding is very focused on what what is the consumer going to be interested in. I have a good instinct for for what the consumer sees or what the consumer might want to see. Mm -hmm. Was that part of your plan? I know you started the the death race, so if you wouldn't mind kind of going into the death race a little bit, but did you kind of start that as kind of the the flagpole that you're going to expand from with? The Spartan race? No, Death Race was first. Death Race was really this idea. Look, up on the farm in Vermont, I wanted to just be inspired myself. And I wanted to inspire others. And what better way than put on a crazy race where folks have to chop wood and climb mountains and carry heavy things and crawl through culverts where anything goes. 
where I could lie to them and change and move the finish line the same way life does. That was the idea for the death race. I didn't think anybody would want to do it, but then people started showing up and the more I pushed back and the harder I made it, the more interested people were. Very much like Shackleton's adventure, you know, where he puts out an advertisement and says, listen, we're going on an adventure. We're going to uh, have low rations. We're going to be in complete darkness and return is unlikely. And 5,000 people raised their hand and said, I'm in. So mm-hmm. people tend to want to take on, you know, challenges. And these were elite athletes showing up and I forgot what the number was, but what percentage were, were dropping out of these races? Oh, we'd get, you know, 85% would drop out of a death race. And there were all kinds of all kinds of people. But, you know, the number one correlation of, of folks that survived the death race, believe it or not, are downhill skiers, which I would not have expected. Downhill skiers outperform pretty much any other kind of athlete when it comes to these long, grueling events. And when I look at it and I ask why, I ask myself why, I think it's because uh, a downhill skier has taken on lots of risk, uh, but even though it's a very fast race that doesn't require a lot of cardio, they're standing out in the cold for hours, just standing there in that tight suit, freezing, right? And so they just, they build, they build uh, calluses all over their body and their brain where they just push through events like this. Were there any other surprises? Could you tell by looking at people who had the best shot at making it through? You can't tell. It could be a mom, a skinny CEO. But when I look over the years, over a decade, it's, it's usually a downhill skier. Somebody with a downhill skier uh, background. But a CEO is interesting. I've had some CEOs. I've had some some just, you know, house housewives. You don't always catch it when, you, when you know, in a typical lineup. One thing you know for sure are the folks that are going to drop out are the big muscular guys. They're out first. Mm-hmm. Just too much energy to keep moving. Yeah, too, they're, they're just, uh, yeah, wrong body type. Or do, or do you think type. it's mindset? Definitely mindset. My dad used to say it when I was a kid. My dad had a, a construction company and, and a uh, air freight business. And uh, he said the, the, the workers that challenged him most were the big bodybuilders. They just, they didn't have it. You know, you get somebody that's a little chunky, you'd look at them and say, gee, they're kind of out of shape. Those are... Those are amazing ultra runners too. It's not the body you expect, not the mm-hmm. not the person you expect. Yeah, I have a, a few friends that are Navy SEALs, and they say the same thing. You can you can't ever pick who who the people that are going to make it through, but you can tell that the the big guys usually don't make it. That's right. So you started this business in college, and then and then it sounds like you you sold it, gave it up to to go to Wall Street. So what was Seems like that would be a difficult thing to do. You're kind of in charge of your own, you know, your own ship to to sell it and then start to work for somebody else. Tough gig, tough to do, hard to pivot in life, right? Feeling like big man on campus, have my customers, everything's going well. I got my girlfriend and um, somebody's convincing me to go to Wall Street. But, you know, in life, I think sometimes you got to take five steps backwards, take one step forward. And at least I had... I can't even say I had the foresight. At least I was willing to take the chance, sell the business to my employees, uh, take literally take 10 steps backwards as far as salary goes, take a job. I, ha- I had no political capital, capital. I had no experience. I wasn't going to get the pay I was making. And um, it was tough. It was a tough transition. I remember crying one day, literally crying, because like I just wasn't, 
just couldn't figure out the math fast enough. The phones were ringing off the hook down on the New York Stock Exchange, and I was just not cut out for this. And then somehow you you know you pull your suspenders up and you dust it off and you come back to to fight another day. And then it started to work one day. And and I guess one common thread through this whole journey has been most of us just quit too soon. You know, we just give up right right when we're about to put the last shovel in the tunnel and it's going to pop out the other side, but it's really dark there and, and you pack it in. But, but somehow through perseverance, resilience, stupidity, whatever it is, I've, I've, I've made it to the point where it's like, wow, this works. Do you think it's teachable to get somebody to be more resilient, have more grit? I think it is. I think, I think at the end of the day, uh, a baby's pretty gritty. And so I think humans are wired pretty gritty, pretty resilient. And then we bubble wrap them and we teach them helplessness and we put them in the zoo. So, you know, if you and I were babies or we had babies and we were up in, you know, Alaska with uh, some Eskimos and we were living in the wild, babies, they have no choice, right? So, so given the choice, because we know what motivates a human being more than anything, and that is um, you want to avoid discomfort at all costs. That's what kept, mm-hmm. that's what's kept us alive. So given the choice, a beautiful igloo with a couch and a fireplace versus being outside, being resilient and gritty, we're taking that couch and that fireplace. Mm-hmm. So, so it's teachable. We, we just gotta, we gotta go through a few layers of the onion. We gotta peel back, right? To find those, uh, those human traits, those wild instincts. Yeah. So I have my first first kiddo on the way this this March. So what do you do with your kids to instill that in them? Well, it's going to be a battle with your wife because a, a, a mom's instincts 99% of the time are, are, and it's what has helped us survive as a species is to protect that child. Um, the problem is there's really, there's not lions beating down your door anymore, right? There's not cliffs around the corner that you're going to fall off of. There's not a a swarm of locusts (laughs) that might show up Mm -hmm. so so they're using you know legacy just like men are uh all screwed up we're we're using legacy hardware and software in a new world right and so what i'm going to describe we did with our children and it was a battle between between my wife and i um she was kind enough to let me win a couple of these things even as extreme as what i'm going to say is going to sound it's still pretty soft so, you know, hey kids, you can watch as much TV as you want, I said, as long as it's in Mandarin. Because we should learn another language. Mm-hmm. Uh, stretch outside our comfort zone. Kids don't even know they're stretching outside their comfort zone at that age. We brought in a Kung Fu master to live with us so they could learn Kung Fu twice a day, seven days a week, you know, because I want them to exercise. I want them to be flexible. Kung Fu uh, requires a lot of flexibility. They ran marathons, you know, once they hit seven or eight years old, which is a little crazy, right? I make them climb the weight, uh, the back, I make them climb the, the, the mountain in the backyard carrying weight. I make them climb stairs, 40 flights of stairs every day when we're living in Tokyo. So I, I, I make them, and I will tell you, you know, you asked the question, two of my boys were in the office today and we have uh, those, those blackboards on the wall, you know, the dry erase boards or whiteboards. Mm-hmm. And my boy wrote, uh, no one cares, work harder. And that's the, the mantra, that's the message in this family. And it's a constant battle, right? Because the kids want the couch and the fireplace and the hot water, why wouldn't they? And, and mom to protect them. And, but clearly somehow it, I, I'm getting through. 
and it is still really soft. I'm describing something that sounds abnormal to most people listening. Trust me, our house is soft. <laughs> I mean, running a marathon when you're eight, that's that's gotta be tough. Come on, I mean, they're, they're, listen, there's cultures all around the world that still, you know, the kids are walking 13 miles to school. Is it really that big a deal? It's only a big deal because we think we, we make it a big deal. Like we don't, yeah, we don't- It's all relative. We yeah, we don't even take stairs anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't take stairs anywhere. Go go to yeah. an airport where there's a staircase next to an escalator. The line could be an extra four minutes on the escalator. No one's taking the stairs. Right. I mean, even going to the gym, people will take the escalator into the gym to go work out. Yeah, and they and they park right next to the front door. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. So so being on Wall Street, how long did you? Spend there. Had like a 12 year run, maybe more. Let me think 95, 15, 15 year run on Wall Street. And and I had my toe in Spartan at the same time. And then uh, just went full time Spartan because I, I just love the emails. I love the messages. I love hearing you know, how we change lives, get people healthier, off alcohol, back with their husband, back with their wife, starting a new business learning how strong they really are. So it's been awesome. What was it like to, I guess, work your way through that Wall Street Wall Street life? Like what are some of the, I guess, lessons that you learned while you were, uh, while you were doing that? I'll tell you a big one that I learned was um, people have problems I can't solve. And I'll give you an example. I had a lot of people on our trading desk that were making a lot of money, a lot more than the average American in the millions of dollars. And they would get upset at year end if somebody that's sitting, you know, within 20 feet of them made $50,000 more. And I used to have to yell at everybody and say, guys, girls, we are making more money than we deserve. Are you really upset because somebody made 50? Like, think about that. And so I think we, I think we, what I saw, we, we lose perspective on things and, and, and we lose this ability to have some gratitude to and just be thankful for like, how great we have it. Yeah, I think some of those niche cultures, I think every profession has it, whether you're a doctor, pilot, lawyer, if you're just around those other people, it's easy to to start worrying where you are in the in the pecking order. Silliness. Yeah. I guess right. I've found having friends outside of that that niche industry is is one thing that's that's helps keep perspective. Agree. So what else? Do you do on a on a day to day day to day for your routine that helps you to perform at a higher level? Every morning, two big glasses of room temperature water, maybe a little apple cider vinegar. Right to a workout. Got to start the car. I call it right. And I'm, I'm the car hasn't been started till I'm sweating. Cold shower. Won't eat till nine a.m. I'm in the office by then working like a maniac all day. Try to stop eating at 5 p.m. Sometimes it goes till six. I might go have a salad now and I'm already an hour past my my window, but I got a long drive ahead of me. And I try to be in bed by, you know, no later than 9, 30, 10. That's my Why game. Why room temperature water? You know, an old Italian told me, uh, God, I was probably 12 or 13 years old, told me at night, the body goes into dialysis, it's filtering out your blood. And the good thing to do 
is to drink a couple of glasses of room temperature water, either with lemon, a little apple cider vinegar, and slam it. Drink it as fast as possible, and it helps flush out the system. So I took his advice, and that's what I've been doing. You mentioned your mom meditated quite a bit. Do you meditate? I meditate about 10 minutes before I go to bed, close my eyes, try to really hone in and focus and shut everything down, and I pass out. <laughs> I'm, out yeah. I'm out cold. That's my meditation. I have to do it in the, in the beginning of the day because otherwise I, I do the same thing at night. Yeah. What about the intermittent fasting? So how much has that helped? I know several of the pilots that I fly with, they do the intermittent fasting. Has that, have you been doing that for a while and what kind of effects have you seen? First of all, I want to talk about like the labeling of intermittent fasting. It's not like everybody thinks it's like a new thing, you know? If humans have been on the planet for a million years, we've been intermittent fasting for the majority of that. We have never had food this accessible. Really, the new thing that humans are experiencing is gorging. <laughs> There's just food available nonstop, right? So we're just trying to go back a little bit towards, to, you can't expect our digestive systems to just be processing food 24 hours a day. So um, yeah, my mom, my mom was pushing this. She was pushing proper food combining back in the 70s because that's what she learned. And so I find eating, you know, between nine and five, shutting it down early, I sleep better. Um, my stomach digests better. And then, and then every month I try, although it's not easy, I try to take two or three days and, and not eat food at all for the last two or three days of that month um, and just really give the system a break. Is that more of a mental thing or is you actually feel physical benefit? Oh, I, you get so much energy. I used to do it with my dog. We had eight dogs on the mm -hmm. farm and I used to experiment with the dogs and the dogs that I took off food for two or three days, they had so much energy. So, so that's where that came from for me. Interesting. And so you ended up finishing up at Wall Street, and then you, it seems like a big jump to move from New York City to Vermont. to Vermont. Well, I met my wife, and she's from Boston, and I was from New York, and I thought we could meet kind of in the middle, although it's not really equidistant. And Vermont was kind of pretty, very pretty. And I was interested in being outdoors and hiking all the time. And I wasn't really interested, like I was just in Australia, and there's every Every corner you turn in Australia in the mountains, something's gonna kill you. Mm -hmm. They got a paralyzing tick. They got these uh, funnel spiders. They got every kind of snake imaginable. Like everywhere you turn, you're, you're going down. And it's not like that in Vermont. In Vermont, you could just live out in the woods and there's nothing. Might run into a moose, maybe, black bear. But other than that, easy as your living room. Mm -hmm. And so, so Vermont was a layup. As far as choices go, it's a little cold and I wanted to be more gritty and resilient, right? A little rainy, feels like um, Lord of the Rings, right? With the mist and there's no billboards. You got Bernie Sanders, if you like him, a little bit of a crackpot in my opinion, but I liked it. So all these these different phases of your life, I think a lot of people would have been afraid to, to jump. How do you look at risk? And how do you assess what's too risky and how to develop a plan around it? I am um, the way I, I make my decisions every all day, every day. And, and my decisions around risk is upside, downside. What's the upside to doing this? What's the downside? If the upside always downside, we're doing it. And that's it. And then I also look at my values. If, if I want to be the best dad ever and we're in Australia and doing one more lap of this 110 kilometer course, would make me feel more macho. However, it might kill me with a friggin' brown snake. 
and and my values are my family, like I'm not doing it, right? You're not, you can't pay me to do it. So so I I, I overlay my values over this decision making matrix, upside downside, which I'm sure you do in the military, and um, I make all my decisions that way. I make lots of mistakes. So I just have to be right 51 percent of the time. Right. Right. Just try to cap the cap the downside. Exactly. Yeah, we we have ORM operational risk management. So every time before we go fly, we'll we'll go and fill out kind of a spreadsheet of of kind of different risks associated with ourselves, with the environment, with the mission, and uh, and see if we're we're good to fly. So yeah. that's that's something that that we do. So what kind of projects are you are you working on now? Like where's Spartan going, and then what are some projects that you're working on yourself? We're in the middle of buying Tough Motor, uh, which is which is fun and exciting and scary at the same time. We we launched a, a company called Deca D E K A Deca Fit, um, and it, it it attempts to be an indoor event where it's a little more um, sterile, a little more clinical, um, very aligned with what you see in the gyms as a competition. So you're running 500 meters and doing a rowing uh, machine, et cetera, et cetera. We just launched Global Trail Initiative, so we're the largest trail running series now in the world because a lot of people just aren't ready for obstacles. We got merchandise, we got an online membership, I got nutrition, so I'm doing everything the textbooks say don't do. I'm pushing, pushing out in, in a lot of different directions at once. A lot of, a lot of different fronts. What about you personally? What are you, what are you working on? What are you, what are you doing? I'm working on um, trying to be a good dad. I got another book we're writing called, um, I think we're going to call it No Bullshit Parenting, but but I'm getting a lot of pushback from my friends saying you can't call it that, but it's a parenting book. What else? Always in fundraising mode, making sure we have enough funds to to cover all these initiatives. And uh, and I got the boys wrestling. It's wrestling season. So looking looking back on your experiences so far, what what are some of the overarching, obviously, it sounds like grit is one of your principles. What are some other principles that you've you've uh, that you started with, and some of the things that you've you've learned over the years? Well, I definitely didn't have grit and resilience as a youngster, but then I but then I started to develop it. I, what I did always have was gratitude. I really um, could understand somebody else's situation, what they went through, appreciating. Maybe that was because my my mom died at a young age. My dad died. I just have, I'm just really grateful. Like even when, when stuff's falling apart on a daily basis, I just like, well, it's going pretty well today. Like I don't have that. I'm not dealing with that, right? Thank God we have, we are where we are. So I definitely have gratitude. I definitely have the ability to commit. Commitment's a big one for me. And then hang on like a pit bull. I've learned integrity over the years. You know, when we talk about structural integrity, right? When you're you're checking the beams and the roof and the windows and all the components of a building as you build it and making sure this thing's going to withstand the wind and the storms and the load of all the people when they enter the building. And I've tested myself and all its components pretty hard and really learned integrity through that process. Yeah. Well, talking to commitment, commitment seems like a, a big issue that a lot of people have. And it seems like it might not even be something that's necessary because there are a lot of little tricks. I think I read that you you lowered the dropout rate of the death race by getting people to say that they were going to finish it in the newspaper. Is that is that correct? 
That is correct. I um, I ask people and I do it myself. When you commit and you commit publicly, you're more likely to stick to it. So I ask people to um, commit publicly in their local newspaper before they're allowed to do the, the death race. And by doing that, the dropout rate uh, drops significantly. And so that's something that the listeners to this podcast should, should do. Uh, whether they want to lose weight, start a new business, uh, are going to ask a, a, a boy or a girl out or, or whatever it is, commit to it publicly and, and all of a sudden you're being held accountable. Was there anything else that you'd like to, uh, to get out there to, to the audience? I'll give you my, my everybody always takes my email, joe at spartan.com. Uh, feel free to send me an email. If there's anybody out there that wants to do an event, but you know, money's in the way, let me know. I'm happy to give you an entry. What else? We have a podcast. Spartan Up is the name of our podcast, so check it out. Follow me on Instagram because uh, I fought social media forever. I didn't want to do it. And now uh, I got a friggin' Instagram account where I got to do videos. So I, I like at least one person watching them. Awesome, Joe. Well, I, I appreciate your time and definitely, uh, definitely had a good time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, you can help out by reviewing it on whatever platform you're listening to on. If you'd like to keep up with me, you can follow along on LinkedIn and Instagram at Justin Fighter Pilot. Today's episode was brought to you by Bremont, over-engineered watches for professionals. In the last few years, Bremont has taken over as the Fighter Pilot's watch. Their combination of precision, quality, and customer service is unmatched. You can see all their watches by going to bremont.com. Today's episode was edited by Trevor Cabler. Again, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you in two weeks.